0: From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Here in New Orleans and all across our state, we're surrounded by history. Our architecture, museums, and libraries tell us stories of bygone eras, but for my money, The best place to get a taste of Louisiana history is in any of our historic restaurants. On this week's show, we look at culinary landmarks that have been dining destinations for generations. We begin with a visit to Middendorf's, the classic seafood house located 40 miles north of New Orleans on Lake Maurepas, Famed for its thin cut fried catfish, Middendorf celebrates its 90th anniversary this year. Owner Horst Pfeiffer tells us how he keeps history alive at the Waterfront Restaurant. And Chef Chris Montero gives us a tour of the Napoleon House, filled with two centuries worth of family lore. We're serving up legendary restaurants with a side of history on this week's Louisiana Eats.
1: My name is Horst Pfeiffer. It's a good Cajun name. I'm the chef and owner of Middendorf's restaurant, seafood restaurant out here in Acres, Louisiana, most known as Man Shack.
0: Whether you call it Acres or Man Shack, this tiny fishing village in Tangibahoa Parish is not where you'd expect to find a legacy restaurant tucked into the marshland between Lake Maurepah and Lake Pontchartrain. Middendorf's is flanked by train tracks on one side and I-55 on the other. You might even call it the middle of nowhere, but pull off the highway around lunchtime and you'll find a packed
1: house. You know, Middendorf's is, I always describe it as a religious experience since it's such a tradition to come here. You know, we have people coming with helicopters, with airboats, airplanes and everything so it's, it's insane. One time I stood in the bar and there's this guy running in there, get his to-go order, and he's a little bit nervous and pays and then goes out. He runs across a parking lot and then goes on a train. He was a train conductor, stopped his freight train, <gasps> called the order in when he was in Panchatula. We made it, got to stop the train, Walked in here, got the food, went back on the train, keep on trucking, uh, oh, training.
0: That is wild. That's <laughs> you
1: see it all out here.
0: And what's worth stopping a train for? Catfish, in this case. A thin-cut fried catfish, delicately seasoned and fried to perfection. Made just the way Mama Josie Middendorf used to do it. That's not Horst Pfeiffer's Mama Josie, by the way. Despite their common German heritage, Horst is a relative newcomer to the story, taking ownership with his wife Karen in 2007. The two of them came from a very different world. Fine dining in New Orleans' French Quarter.
1: Well, you know, I started Bella Luna in 91, had a till the night of Katrina. Bella Luna was known for its romance. It was a beautiful place, uh, incredible. I always said we had an incredible package. We had valet parking. If you want to show off the city and enjoy the quarter, and the quarter was safe back then, you know, you came to Bella Luna. You parked there. You could walk around and sip home. And we had our thin fettuccine always tossed tableside. That's what we were known for and the romance. A lot of people proposed there, got married there. So it was something real, real special. And Karen and I, that's where we, was our stomping ground. We lived two minutes away. I did my herb garden at the Ursuline Convent, some of the people know. And you know, then Katrina came and from there it's all history. So I needed a job and Susie Lamonte wanted to sell Middendorf's and we talked and so I bought myself work.
0: When Horst and Karen bought Middendorf's, they weren't just getting a restaurant they were taking over a 73-year-old family business. The catfish remained, as did the staff, and the history was placed front and center.
1: If you come in the restaurant in Manshak, there's a big timeline, and Christy and Karen worked real hard to put it together. Okay, let's go down okay, there.
0: Okay, let's go, let's go start at the beginning. Sprawled across three walls at the Manshak restaurant, you'll find a timeline covered in pictures and interesting facts, illustrating Middendorf's storied history. Horst walked us through the display, beginning with the restaurant's founders, Lewis and Josie
1: Middendorf. In 1929, Lewis and uh, Josie Middendorfs moved down here to Manchick. He was in World War I, and back then from Teddy Roosevelt, I think they got $500 for being in the war. And he used this money and another $500 from a friend in New Orleans to open then the Middendorf seafood restaurant, as we see here on the pictures. They started in 1934. It used to be just a little one uh, dining room thing and a bar. And back then, you know, there was a lot of seafood restaurants there. There were in certain areas, you know, there were not many uh, restaurants. People actually traveled to where the source was, the seafood source. So they came out, you know, for the people in Kenner, uh, outing, coming out to Manchac and eat seafood on the weekend was something very, very special.
0: What was it like out here, do you suppose, in those days?
1: Well, it was the old road still, dirt road, shell road, going down to La Place, And then people drove in the airline highway. Well, if you want to disappear from the earth, you came out to Manchac probably. This was a good <laughs> place to hide. <laughs>
0: Finding quick success with Josie's catfish recipe, the busy couple ran the business together until Lewis passed away in the late nineteen forties. Soon after, Josie leased Middendorfs to a local businesswoman, Pat
1: Midland. Pat Midland leased it for twenty years, I think, and in my eyes she's the reason why it's still around. She owned clubs in Hammond and Panchatula, she had some country western club. There used to be a lot. You know, Dolly Parton, they all came to to Tula, played there. There was big How music funny. there. Yeah.
0: Well, tell me about this. If Miss Josie Middendorf is leasing the restaurant, is she leasing the techniques and the recipes for the thin fried catfish?
1: Well, back then, they probably didn't have as many lawyers, so nobody asked. If you get my business, you got the business in the building. Ah. And Miss Josie just lived next door. So she still was over here and, you know, just handed over. When the
0: lease was up in 1967, Dick Smith, Josie's son from another marriage, took the reins of the family business. With his wife, Helen, Dick worked to modernize Middendorf's for a new era.
1: Well, he added a little bit some of his own touch. You know, it's the first time they probably had more... uh, wine, and he tried to make it a little more fine dining since he was a soldier traveling around the world. So he wanted to add it to it. But, you know, you can't change certain things. So people don't like changes here, you know. But his wife, uh, you know, Miss Helen and the daughter Susie, uh, they basically took it on and was run by the two girls, by the women.
0: In 1970, when I-10 opened from Metairie to Laplace, the business really began booming.
1: And then at the same time, uh, since they needed more space, Mr. Dick Smith's buying the properties next door was so strange, you know, all the restaurants here, but there was always a line at Middendorf since people fell in love with the thin-fried catfish.
0: Eventually, Dick and Helen's eldest daughter, Susie, became the third-generation proprietor of Middendorf's, which she ran with her husband, Joey Lamont. After nearly 40 years working in the restaurant and with no family to pass it on to, Susie decided to sell the business. This is where Horst and Karen come in. So, yes, you bought yourself a job by purchasing Middendorf's. But as I understand it, Mrs. Pfeiffer, your wife Karen, had her rules about what was going to happen next, too.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. From Bella Luna, we had to reprint the menu every day in the linen. She said, "Horse, if we go back in the restaurant business, I don't want linen tables. I want laminated menus. I want a parking lot since we used to have five valets. Uh, so we wanted a parking lot. Uh, not reprinting the menus every night and no tablecloths on the table so I came out here on a Tuesday and looked at it and I came back and I said Karen well it says everything you want so she said let's go and look at it And so we came out on Sunday and uh, she fell in love with it and um, we worked it out.
0: Back in 2007 when you all made the big move from Bellaluna to Middendorf's what did people say?
1: Well A lot of people first didn't believe it and uh, didn't understood it. And a lot of people really thought I went crazy. One time I went to a funeral and Archbishop Eamon was there. And he said, Horst, are you okay? Is there something wrong with you?" (laughs) 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 And I said, no. I said, uh, but I tell one thing. It was a good move and I'm so proud. And, you know, sometimes when you have new challenges in life, it gives you new energy. And after what we went through in Katrina and how we lost everything there, that's why it be what I needed. I could not done Middendorf's in my heydays when I had Bella Luna, when, you know, the hot chef and doing this. I probably would ruin it. So it was the perfect timing at my age-wise and what I went through to take over a place like Middendorf's.
0: And so, how did that transition go with the customers? You know it's It's revolutionary to have a non-family member come in. How did all that go?
1: Well, on this being said, you know, most people uh, they didn't know the family this well. They were not out in the dining room floors. If I would have done anything different back then in seven, I wouldn't told anybody I bought it. I wouldn't told anybody I'm here since the first couple months, Everybody won't tell them, just for me to wake up in the morning and breathe was the wrong thing. <laughs> um, but I tell one thing, it's an incredible challenge to keep a uh, Louisiana icon going like this and to persistently produce a product what people eat for 80, 90 years to make sure it's the same quality. Since if somebody walks out here and says, hey, your coleslaw, there was a little bit something off today, so you better go back and check it. You know, Bella Luna was whatever I cooked, that's what people ate. So they've kind of followed my taste. Well, Middendorf's, I had to learn it and I had to learn it. And that's how people want it. And out here in, in Manchac, you know, when the customers come and they don't like something, they'll tell you <laughs> blunt, but they will forgive you. <laughs> so, uh, it was a little bit rough, you know, so need a new guy, uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, I care. And now people trust me, and they're glad what I did, and they're thankful. It is real, real special to be the keeper of something like this. When people come in there and constantly tell you, they say, thank you for not changing anything. Well, and we never change anything, we just add into it.
0: We've been speaking with Horst Pfeiffer of Middendorf's Restaurant. Coming up next, our conversation continues as Horst talks about his tenure as owner and how he weathers storms on the Louisiana Marsh. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce. Step out of the heat and into the flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood, straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Camellia's latest innovation makes life easy for today's smaller households. Beans for two. If a bag of beans is too big for your family, Camellia's New Orleans-style red beans for two and Cajun-style white beans for two has everything needed for dinner in today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. If you're just joining us, we've been speaking with Horst Pfeiffer, chef and owner of Middendorf's, the historic seafood house built in 1934 in Manchac, Louisiana. Horst and his wife Karen bought the property in 2007 after their French Quarter Fine dining spot, Bella Luna, closed after Katrina. They made a point not to change, only add to Middendorf's. But as the effects of climate change amplify the severity of storms and floods in the area, Horst has had to make some changes to keep the doors open. This has been such an amazing effort of yours because you get driven out here by Hurricane Katrina, so to speak, so a hurricane sent you out here, but you have been fighting a gargantuan issue of weather since you arrived. Tell me about some of the experiences you've had and the remediation
1: that you have created for future storms. Well, you have to help yourself, and you have to prepare for yourself. You know, it's all up to you. Don't wait for anybody else, I tell everybody. You better do it yourself. Uh, Look, when the last storm hit, the next day we were down here with the tractor start, clean up whatever we could do and fix it and patch it since you want to be open right away but it starts before anything you do in this time and age if they tell you put two screws in there you put four screws in there <laughs> whatever we built here we build it stronger and and better and higher and drier but if soon some storm would come in the uh, uh, Gulf of Mexico you know we prepare ourselves we have a levee around it we have next door on carts, big floodgates we can roll out and close the openings where the people drive in Um, organizing all the buildings pick everything up bring everything high already when you organize something and then as this goes in the Gulf of Mexico and comes close and they know the track better then you have different stages when to close to certain things uh, you know how high the water is and everything and then you just say a prayer but uh and then when you come back the next day you have a plan a and a plan b you know
0: you built your own floodgates would you explain that marvelous piece of engineering
1: uh, just around us they are uh, they are um fold up structures and then we anchor them in the ground there so that we put a a concrete wall down there There's already balls and nuts in there and it's just labor-intensive but hey you do it and then secure everything with sandbags and everything make it airtight the flax seal everywhere I mean wherever you see a, a hole you have to plug since out here you know over hundreds of years you not only get water from the top you also get water from underground since there's so many trees and debris underground if, if the water goes a certain height we see hey, there's a new spring, you know. <laughs> it's just <laughs> what it is, uh, underground water. And so we prepare for it. We have a pump outside. We have 1,500 gallons of diesel here. We have thousands of gallons of propane here to run our pumps and everything and our generators. And the generators we have is not necessarily for a storm season since when the storm comes, there's nobody here anyway. I have generators here since where we are located, we're at the end of the power line. It's not like we're in a grid like big cities. So if you move in Panchatula, and you don't watch it, and you hit a power pole, office is out of power so on the way down in 51. And that happens on a regular base. So I had two years ago, and I got so mad. On Mother's Day, Energy decided to shut down the power since they had to change something in a substation. And it's Mother's Day, and I didn't ha- like, whatever. So. Why argue with somebody? You know, they, you're not, you're not going to win with energy, you know, so it's not worth it. So we sucked it up, like I would say, and just keep on trucking. <laughs> and so we have generators big enough to run everything on a, if it's like a day-to-day, blue sky and sunny, I call this Middendorf's well, And there's a line on the door. I don't want to have an excuse why we can't produce it. That's why we have a generator incredible yeah oh. so we have generators we have pumps we build our levee we built higher and drier and when the storm comes but that's plan a plan B and just keep on trucking you know out here we're not only by the water in the swamp you have so many challenges you know the mosquitoes and the bugs out here and the gators and everything all the things come there I mean we have to spray under the building to, to, oh. for the people to enjoy the deck. Actually, by the water, it's nicer. If I go like 200 yards to my neighbor it, at sunset, I mean, you better wear long-sleeve coats instead They're freaking carry away these mosquitoes. They're so big. <laughs> a few days ago, we walk out in the back, and there sits a six-foot alligator there.
0: A six-foot alligator. Six optic.
1: foot is hard to tackle. Four foot I could grab. Six foot we have to call somebody since you have to tie him up. And he was not in a good mood, since he had only three legs, so another gator oh. bit a leg and everything. So, oh. And it was before the season, so we couldn't turn him into gator bites, but um, oh. when Ida hit us the next morning, you walk down here and water, you know, up to your belt. I counted 15 alligators in our lot. That's the wild.
0: Of course, a lot of people, with everything we have just discussed about what it takes to have Middendorf's in Manchac, many people would think that was enough. But you opened a
1: huge new restaurant in Slidell not too long ago. Well, you have a lot of good people, and you want them to grow, too. So that's why we did it. And I feel like Middendorf's had deserved the right to go out there and try it.
0: I guess, in a way, you're a new restaurant to some of those Slidell folks.
1: (laughs) Well, uh, we absolutely knew. And, uh, you know, we have to learn and they have to learn. Um, In the beginning it was a wild ride since everybody knew the name Middendorf's. But so many people came there and didn't know what Middendorf's was, you know. Oh, all you have is fried catfish. Well, we have more than this, but it's our main staple, you know.
0: Well, one of the things that I just love so about what you and Karen have done is that while you've maintained the absolute true character and true cuisine, you've added so much to Middendorf's. And of course, I'm talking about Oktoberfest.
1: Well, in 2008, after we came back from Ike and the flooding, we felt like we had to get a little bit momentum going. So we feel like, uh, me being German, Middendorf being German, plus there used to be a gigantic Oktoberfest in Panjatula, but it's moved down to Gonzales. So we started Oktoberfest, and it's been here since 2008. It's now a tradition, goes for six weeks, and every Wednesday and Thursday we have a special meal. Besides our regular menu, we have also some German dishes to choose from, and every week they'll change out. And it's a lot of fun. Uh, people really love it. Our regulars who come normally and eat their thin-fried catfish and a glass of iced tea. During this time, they eat a German sauerbraten, sauerkraut, rotkraut, schnitzel, and a beer. And, and it's a real family affair because your brother is here. Yes, it's a family affair. He's come playing the accordion and everything. And so it's a lot of fun. And people getting dressed up and, and the employees enjoying it since it's real festive.
0: This is just such an amazing piece of history. It's very hard for people to understand the nearness and the dearness that people hold Middendorfs in.
1: And we have to protect it but also we have to educate the new generations. You know, you drive with them somewhere they're most time on the iPhone. They don't they don't look out and see a bald eagle. They would rather look at an iPhone and everything. Hopefully it turns around one day where you know, the story we telling right now, you know, like in the old days, the storytellers. It's important to keep history going since I don't know what they're going to do.
0: Well, thank goodness that you are here keeping that history going. I am always
1: happy to be here with you, Horst. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. It's a lot of fun things to see here when you see the families get together, just being happy and getting comfort food.
0: That was Horst Pfeiffer, chef and owner of Middendorf's, speaking with us at his waterfront restaurant in Manchac, Louisiana. The Seafood House turns 90 years old this year.
2: My name is Chris Montero. I'm the general manager and executive chef of the Napoleon House.
0: Over the course of his decades-long career with the Ralph Brennan Restaurant Group, chef Chris Montero has played a major role in several notable ventures. He served as executive chef at Baco's in the French Quarter for 12 years, opened and ran Cafe B and Metairie and launched Cafe Noma in the New Orleans Museum of Art. His latest role? Keeper of the historic Napoleon House, somewhat of a feather in the cap of his professional career.
2: I'm a kid in the candy store right now, yes.
0: With its funky European vibe, and signature menu of items like Pim's Cups and Mufaladas, the Napoleon House was a place the New Orleans-born chef knew about his entire life. But his interest goes way beyond the bar and dining room. Chris is a lifelong history buff who regards history, especially New Orleans history, as his greatest passion, second only to food. Soon after he was tapped to be executive chef of the iconic restaurant in 2015, he immersed himself in over two centuries of story and lore, all centered around the two families who previously owned the building. It's kind of cool, 225
2: years of history, and the first 100 year was the Gerard family, and the second 100 years was the impostado family. And all of the history that I know was just word-of-mouth history from the Impostados some of it like most oral histories it gets convoluted and crosses over and much like the history of my family but a lot of it's inaccurate and we've procured and hired a historic architect Robbie Cangelosi. in the last three years since we, we've uncovered so much that we didn't know about the building and it's it's absolutely fascinating
0: In 2018, Louisiana Eats joined Chris at the Napoleon House Bar, where portraits of Impostados and Napoleon Bonaparte lined the walls. The chef was eager to give us a tour of the landmark and fill us in on its history, beginning with the transition of ownership from the Impostados to Ralph Brennan in 2015 the
2: Empostado family had been running this all of their life Uh, you know the second generation that was Sal Empostado and his four sisters had been running this from the time they were children you know they're all in their mid 70s to early 80s and uh, they were ready to pass this torch on and what happened were we as you probably know regained and restored the original Brennan dress on a Royal Street we being Ralph Brennan and the group and while we were going through that restoration, there were a lot of articles being written, and, you know, and most of them focused on Ralph's intent of retaining the family history and preserving that history, et cetera. And that caught the eye of Sal Impostato. And he reached out to Ralph Brennan, kind of behind the scenes, and said, you know, would you be interested in taking over my family's restaurant? With Ralph said, yes, <laughs> without, on the phone, without hearing <laughs> any details. And that process took about a year. <laughs> the negotiations no lawyers no real estate just Ralph and Sal and pastado old old fashioned but somewhere in that period Ralph called me and said Chris do I, you can't say anything to anyone but do I have a something for you you're going to love it right because I'm a history nut always have been I was a history major in college and I've always been interested in New Orleans not just culinary history but I've loved the architecture and the culture and so on and uh, he said man do I have a something you're gonna love, and it's gonna be your retirement plan. So I was just thrilled, and had no idea the breadth and depth of what was in this building.
0: Guiding us through the decaying splendor of the restaurant's first floor, Chef Chris led us upstairs. Oh, this space. Formerly apartments, the space was converted to make room for private parties and receptions. Boasting carved wooden fireplace mantles, ornate chandeliers, and handsome doorways, the elegant rooms were beautifully preserved, as if they were suspended in time. So the first thing that was a
2: big surprise to me was that the Napoleon House is a National Historic Landmark, and it's not by historical designation, the Napoleon House, it's called the Girard House, right? In 1797, the three Gerard brothers began building this property, the oldest parts of the building date back to the late 1700s, just after the last fires here in the French Quarter. And it was their business offices at first, and the corner was an open lot. And when the oldest brother died in the early 1800s, Nicholas Girard wanted to build a residence on what was the business property. And that's where we're sitting right now. We're sitting in the apartment of Nicholas Girard, that was finished in 1812, which also was the year he was elected mayor of New Orleans. So not only was he a wealthy businessman, he also has the distinction of being the first elected mayor to the city of New Orleans in 1812. He's a Frenchman, right? You're going to love this. He spoke no English. So the first Mayor of New Orleans, after it became part of America, after the Louisiana Purchase, spoke no English. He really actually didn't have a lot of admiration towards Americans. And he said, they said I want to do his inauguration in English. And he said, maybe these Americans should learn to speak French, right? (laughs) And he refused to speak any English in his inauguration. It's just a New Orleans thing, right? So this guy is the mayor of New Orleans in 1812. And then he's elected for a second term in 1814 we all know what 1814 was in new orleans the beginning of the battle of new orleans the end of 1814. january of 1815 the battle of new orleans takes place in chalmette very historic event well who's the mayor at the time is sitting here in the apartment we're in this is nicholas Girard. he's also in charge of the creole militia and he was liaison to andrew jackson in helping to collaborate with the creoles the french-speaking creoles but really, what he was instrumental in was he had these ties to Jean Lafitte and Dominic Yu. Uh, Dominic Yu was a general in Napoleon's army, one of the facts that come into play at the end of the story. So therefore, historians say that Gerard's involvement with Jackson was tremendously instrumental in this victory because of the people he was able to tie together with Jackson and his army from out of, out of the state. We, we have this overwhelming victory in the Battle of New Orleans and Gerard's even more popular here in the city amongst the Creoles. He gets all the credit with locals, the rest of the country, you know, and J- Jackson goes on to become president and so on. A few years later, Napoleon Bonaparte is exiled to a remote island in the, in the Atlantic, right? And uh, this is 1818. And around the city of New Orleans, that is a big deal. And the buzz starts going all around town. The reason that he's making this apartment more and more opulent all the time. He's adding a cupola to the roof, and he's adding, doing restoration to these apartments on the top floor that no people have lived up there. The reason he's doing all these embellishments is to offer exile to Napoleon. They're gonna, they're gonna rescue him with Dominic Yu, right? Mm-hmm. And that story catches wildfire around the city. It's all the buzz. It's very well documented that everyone was talking about it. And then what happens, Napoleon? He kicks off up yeah. and dies, right? 1821 he dies suddenly. But everyone in the city were convinced that this was going to be Napoleon's house. So shortly thereafter, it began being referred to as the house Napoleon was gonna live in. Mm. Right? And it just it just never went away. We have two hundred years of this great story, and hey, we don't know that it wasn't true because okay. there's no there's no documentation of any discussions about it other than what the locals were talking about.
0: Do you know much about what happened with the property between the Girards and the Impastatas? I know a bit. I
2: mean, we're learning a lot more every day. So during the Girard era, it was owned by the family all the way until the late 1800s. Gerard died just before the Civil War in his 80s. He's buried in St. Louis Cemetery right down the street, mm-hmm. very near Marie Laveau. But his family retained, his heirs retained the property until the turn of that century. And he left his enormous fortune to charity, the vast majority. He's one of the greatest philanthropists the cities have ever known, uh, Nicholas Gerard. Louis Armstrong was raised in an orphanage that was built with funds from Nicholas Gerard's fortune that he left to, uh, to these charities. But the rest of his family had lots of wealth also, there were other brothers, and they retained the property until the late 1800s when we'll, it's lost between 1900 and 1912, and we're gonna figure it out, when it changed hands with a couple of leases. So one of those leases, who we've not been able to identify started a little small, grocery store, which is now the main bar of the Napoleon House. We know that because we've got a picture in the other room from 1906 that says, has a Laborde grocery, right? And we don't know who that is. And then in 1914, a young man man by the name of Giuseppe Impostato, who was in his mid-twenties, saved enough money, a Sicilian immigrant, very working class, to buy what was once the mayor's mansion here in New Orleans.
0: Coming up next, our Napoleon House tour continues as chef Chris Montero shares the history and culinary legacy of the building's 20th century owners, the Empestado family. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish: fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from Visit the North Shore, discover world-class culinary flavors on Louisiana's North Shore. Experience the bounty of the bayou and the rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at visitthenorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, Louisiana's easy escape. Just 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter. If you're just joining us, we're revisiting our 2018 walkthrough of the Napoleon House, an iconic French Quarter restaurant with over two centuries of history. Our guide, executive chef and history buff Chris Montero, has been on quite a tour of discovery ever since Sal Impostado handed over the Napoleon House keys to Ralph Brennan in 2015. After Reconstruction, the French Quarter transitioned from an opulent cosmopolitan center to a working class neighborhood with a large immigrant population. In 1920, Giuseppe, better known as Uncle Joe Impostato, purchased the home of former New Orleans Mayor Nicholas Girard. By the time he bought the Napoleon House, so many Sicilian immigrants lived in the Quarter that it was often called Little Palermo.
2: Uncle Joe, Giuseppe Impostato, this young man, had a dream of opening a Sicilian market. He wanted a grocery store, and that's originally what it was. We've got just a handful of pictures of the Napoleon House as a Sicilian grocery, you know, with canned tomatoes on the walls and little aprons. That started slowly in 1914, but we do know that before the Depression era, it had started selling sandwiches and wine and beer, and that became a popular outlet for these Irish immigrants and the Italian workers, you know, a real roughneck working class kind of grocery slash bar, right? And apparently that really caught traction. So that after Prohibition, it really the focus of the Napoleon House was a bar room.
0: When did he carry the Victrola downstairs? Uh, somewhere
2: in the 30s, Uncle Joe Giuseppe Impostato was a huge fan of opera, that was his passion, and he started bringing the Victrola down into the when it, when it started becoming a more popular bar and playing classical music. Who's record? Look at the records, those are Uncle oh,
0: Joe's those are right. records. Those are Uncle Joe's, yes. oh my goodness. Walking through the banquet rooms on the second floor, Chris led us into a four-room apartment the former home of Joe Impastato. This is where
2: Giuseppe passed away in 1985 at 100 years old. And this is the old section of the building. We're standing above the 1700. Below this parquet floor are the old, old, some of the oldest flooring in, in, in the city of New Orleans dating from the late 1700s.
0: Also directly below us was the Napoleon House's famous downstairs bar. I asked Chris to explain the story of how the Pimm's Cup cocktail came to be a classic menu item under Joe's leadership. A couple of things that
2: transpired. He wasn't necessarily a fan of hard drinking and alcohol and whiskey drinking Irishmen. You know, he, he liked wine and beer and low alcohol, and he introduced this low alcohol drink from London uh, that was kind of a newfangled thing, apparently, when he was young, he called a Pimm's Cup downstairs to the bar. And he introduced Pims cups to New Orleans, and we know this from the Pims folks that have a history that this was one of the first venues in America that started importing Pims. Number one, because of Uncle Joe, so we like to give him all the credit as the Pims people do for being the largest distributor or sales uh, venue for Pims cup in America by far. There's no one close, so we're proud of that, right?
0: Now I know you must know the answer to this. When does the Mufalada appear here?
2: Uh, it's a little convoluted, but this is what we know. Um, we know that he liked po' boys, uh, Uncle Joe. His cousin owned the Union Bakery that made a lot of the Italian bread, the Italian twist and the muffalata loaves. Uh, we know that Central Grocery takes credit, and rightly so, for introducing the muffaladas to New Orleans, but that was a, a relative of Giuseppe that sold the muffaladas Somewhere in the 20s, he began selling more and more sandwiches. And you know, the muffalata just had to be because it was his cousin that sold the loaf. And he wanted to sell it hot though. He didn't think it needed to be a cold deli sandwich. And that's been our reputation ever since, right? But you know, I'm a big fan of all of it. So we all I strive to do here is to be as authentic and integral to those recipes You know, Ralph Brennan told me something the day I started here. He said, our number one mission is to honor the legacy of the Impostato family. Uh, He is just enamored and loves the fact that uh, we were fortunate enough to keep this great entity going. And that's what we do.
0: I, I, I make the original recipes. Next, Chris led us up a grand centuries old staircase taking us from the second to the third floor. On the next level, Chris showed us a number of apartments overlooking charters and St. Louis streets. Oh my goodness, what a view. Looking around, I couldn't help but feel that with each staircase we climbed, we were going further back in time. And then we go into the real time warp now, right? Up into what we
2: refer to as the attic.
0: Well, tell me about this space. So
2: this has been the most intriguing space and the one that we still are trying to sort out the details, but this is what we think we know. We're going we're gonna to determine a lot of this more in, uh, soon. When I got here, the impostado story of this space was the attic used to be dormitories for sailors in the 1800s, right? Because the Gerard family were in the import, export and business on the river. But as soon as I brought an architect up here, an historic architect, he took one look and said, these were not, he said that maybe after the Civil War, pre-Civil War, these were slave quarters. Because A, the dead giveaway, is these traditional servant stairs, which are here that go, what originally went all the way down to the ground floor. But since that presumption was made, I've done more research. And I've now come to identify the slaves who actually lived here, oh, right?
0: how in the world did you do that? Did that by s- Facebook
2: and social media and looking up a a site of an author who wrote a fictional novel about Napoleon in New Orleans but she had a thread of people that were communicating with her about her book and one of them were descendants of Nicholas Gerard who live in Evangeline parish where he had a large apparently there are a lot of Gerard descendants in that area of the state so we began communicating with them then I did some research from her book about who were the slaves owned by Gerard, of which he had hundreds, but only three that lived in his apartment in Napoleon House. And here's where it gets really cool for me. There were two men and a a woman who lived up here in the third floor, and they were personal house slaves of Nicholas Gerard. And the daughter of the woman who lived here went on to marry Nicholas Gerard's nephew, who inherited all of his property. Including the the big plantation now that was pre-civil war was relatively unheard of that it wasn't uncommon for Marriages or, or rather children from slave owners and slaves But for an aristocratic family to have married the daughter of a slave live up to it is super cool, right? Yeah. Um, it kind of shows that that of uh, that era there was a different mindset amongst some of the property owners and their descendants of this woman who lived here are the Gerard family that lives in Evangeline Parish and the daughter who communicated with me did not know that so she's coming soon to come visit where her great uh, sixth great-grandmother lived in 1800s she's bringing the family tree the genealogy tree and we're gonna trace everyone back here to this incredible. This
0: incredible incredible amazing yeah. and we've just discovered that literally in the last six months Our final destination was the jewel of this architectural crown, an octagonal cupola that provided us with a breathtaking view of the Quarter and Mississippi River. So this was something that Gerard built as a bit of a fancy.
2: Again, another area that we're trying to understand, like why did he build an Italian cupola on top of his creole Spanish-Caribbean architecture? Well, because of his business, in 1800, you'd have been looking right down on the wharf, and perhaps it was a business consideration, but some of the writings indicate that he was just showing off, right? Yeah. That he was envious of the cupolas on the on the Cabildo, and that he wanted to have the tallest residence in the city of New Orleans, which it was, um, because the only thing taller would have been the cathedral and the Cabildo at the time so uh, maybe he was just kind of flaunting his wealth at the time but we don't know either way you look at it this is one of the most integral aspects of the building if you look at all the old paintings and the historic collection they all feature the cupola on the roof but we're really proud of it we plan to take great care of it and we're going to make sure it's around for another 100 or 200 years for people to experience
0: it's just fantastic thank you so much it's
2: my pleasure as always
0: Our 2018 tour of the Napoleon House with chef, preservationist, and historian, Chris Montero. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats. Edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. We'd like to welcome our new major sponsor, Blue Plate Mayonnaise. And say thanks to our returning sponsor, Dickie Brennan and Company. Louisiana Eats is also made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, Visit the North Shore, and Camellia Beans, celebrating their innovative new product, Beans for Two. Camellia's new Red Beans for Two and White Beans for Two include everything needed to cook two authentically seasoned bowls of beans scaled for today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. And from D'Agostino Pasta, celebrating our culture with fleur-de-lis, crawfish, and alligator-shaped pastas all handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb with writing contributions from Becky Retz, and... To our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mullidoux. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.